as if you guys didn't know he was a nerd, now you know for sure this morning he's a, he's a nerd. So I love him, though. I love him. Star Trek. I mean, let's be honest. The new reboot of the movies, I really like. And Benedict Cumberbatch as Khan, was that not epic or what? Some, it's so good, huh? See, Eric and I are connected on this, so love it. So turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. And uh, I would say if, if someone rolled in and, and heard how you guys answered Howard's question as far as the Christian's prime directive, um, they would be impressed, and I think God would be glorified. You all had great answers. Thank you for being a, a church that is, uh, that is dialed in for the most part with, I think, God's mission. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. God's mission. And, and speaking of mission, uh, if we remember back 21 years ago, you know exactly where you're at when you first heard of the news of the attack that was taking place on American soil. Um, we've probably spent this weekend reflecting and thinking about where we were when we first got the news. We had just planted a church over in uh, West Chandler, Ahwatukee area, and um, we were actually heading out of town that week to go to Boston, and I had a, I had a wet-behind-the-ears new pastor that was going to preach the Sunday after 9-11. And you would think I'd stay back and go, you know what, no, I got this. No, we, we still left and left him in the, in the driver's seat for that Sunday. And uh, boy, as a pastor, as believers, you know, these were things that, uh, if you remember back then, uh, how, do you, how do you connect with people? How do, you, how do you come alongside people? How do you process what was going on. Here's one thing I know, and as I'm reflecting on, on 9-11, here's the one thing that I cannot get away from, and that is how I was encouraged with the unity we showed as American people to come together and make sure we took care of one another, looked out for one another. I think most people, as they reflect 21 years ago what was happening, it didn't matter your skin color, it didn't matter your religion, it didn't matter your political persuasion, it didn't matter your socioeconomic status, your demographic, where you lived, what you did for a living. What mattered is we are going to come together as Americans and we're going to make sure we look out for each other. And for me, that is the most encouraging aspect of what took place on that tragic day. We mourn the loss of lives. We pray for the, the families that had friends and family that, that died during this time. Uh, we prayed for our, our leaders. Uh, but there was, there was no quibbling. There was no debating. There was no arguing over trivial, senseless things. It was just like we all had a mission, and that is we're going to look out for each other. And I think we prayed at the time, you know, Lord, help us to retain this sense of unity. Because there's too much that's going to divide us. And then what happens over time? Anytime humans are involved, we tend to be divisive. We tend to find the things we don't agree with. We tend to, to find our tribes and to, and, to, and to not support one another. And boy, there's a part of me that prays for that sense of unity again. And if there's any group in the, in the now I would say country, I would say even the world, that's going to promote unity and harmony, it's got to be the church. Here's our prime directive. Acts 11, Peter comes back to the church to report what God's been doing, and all they can do is just criticize and fight and, 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 and argue over, over what God is doing. Here's what I love about Howard's verse, which is from John, right? You know what? When we love one another, we actually set an example for the world to say, wow, you're disciples of Jesus. And we let the world, Jesus is almost implying that we let the world 
tell us how we're doing. And all I know is that the church can do better. And, and, and what I mean church is not just this church, small c, but I'm thinking big church, universal. I'm thinking that the world is waiting for us to become more unified and I would say centralize on a mission because all of us are on a mission. Matter of fact, that's the main word this morning in your notes. You'll notice, missional. It's this idea that no believer in Christ is immune from God's mission. Every single one of us has a mission. I've been preaching this 12 plus years, and there's still people that don't get it. And guess what I'm going to keep doing? I'm going to keep preaching it. <laughs> I'm going to keep preaching it because when Jesus says to the disciples, as the Father has sent me, now I send you, that's just not relegated to that band of 12 that Jesus was personally ministering to. That has to do with the church forever. We are forever serving our king and we're forever on mission. And that is the greatest thing that you and I can set our minds and hearts and lives to. Living on mission. So perhaps for you, if you're living on mission, today will be a, a continual encouragement for you to live on mission. But if you've never heard this before, I'm praying that the Spirit would work in our hearts to show us, man, what I've been living for has fallen short of God's mission for me, which is ultimately for Him. See, as the, as the U.S. was unified 21 years ago, I'm praying for that same unity. We had a mission to look out for one another. We as believers have a mission to communicate Jesus and see God's kingdom expanded. And that's what we get to look at in uh, Acts chapter 11. Turn your Bibles there if you would. There's going to be three things we talk about when it comes to mission this morning. There's missional hindrances. There's missional heroism. And there's missional homework. So the homework obviously is application. So I look forward to getting to that. But First, we got to look at the, the missional hindrances and then the heroism. Because in Acts chapter 11, we see people in the church not cooperating with God's mission. And I meet those kind of people all the time. Not that any of them are in this room right now. I'm not saying that. But there's also a missional hero here, and his name is Peter. And I, and I celebrate what Peter's doing. And I, pre I appreciate his tact. I appreciate his tone. I appreciate his... his his, his, his heart to even win those over who are reluctant to get on God's plan. And so when it comes to mission, what's God been doing up to chapter 11? Well, he's, he's been changing the lives of people from Jews to Samaritans to, to Gentiles. We've just experienced the third wave, we'll call it. First wave is the gospel going to Jerusalem. Second wave is the gospel going to Judea, Samaria, and the, third, the second wave. And then the third wave is going to the Gentiles. And this is exactly what Acts 1-8 has been about, playing out God's plan, right? This is his promise. This is his plan. This is his purpose. And so, but when God works, note this, there's always resistance. And you would think that the resistance is from those outside the church, can I just tell you right now what my experience has been for 30 plus years in ministry? The worst resistance are those in the church. The Holy Spirit in Acts 10 has just broken down common and unchallenged ethnically and socially based evaluations of humanity and, and the leaders that Peter's going to go back to in Jerusalem are worried over trivial things. They're not celebrating, they're complaining. Do you know people who think they have the spiritual gift of complaining? 
There's just nothing you can do to, to please them. They're always finding something negative. They're always focused on the, on the negative, right? Let me just tell you, there's times to rejoice with those who rejoice, and there's time to weep with those who weep. That's what Romans says. And what Peter wants is to go back to a church that's celebrating, and all they can do is complain. Why? Because these are men, women, that are so locked in with traditionalism, they forgot about the tradition of their faith. What's the difference? Well, Polish theologian, I know. The moment I mentioned Polish theologians, some of you are like so excited, and some of you check out. His name is Yurasov Plekin. He says this, Tradition is the living faith of those now dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of those now living. I served in a church as a college pastor that was so steeped in traditionalism that they were resistant to anything that the Holy Spirit wanted to do in that, in that church at that moment. And I'm not saying it was across the board, but there was, there was a stronghold of people refusing to change. And I put that quote over my door, and I just had that as just like, Lord, break down these walls of traditionalism. We want to celebrate our heritage and our history and tradition, but there's got to be something that you do in the hearts of people that are resisting what you want to do. Because something you're going to hear me say, and I want to say it right now, our message never changes. But our methods must continually adapt to our ever-changing world. Okay? We're going to come back to this. The message never changes. The methods have to. So let's look at the passage, and we'll go back, and we'll talk about the three things, right? Hindrances, heroism, and homework. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Verse 1, we should be celebrating. Right? we like, yeah! Verse 2, and Peter came up to Jerusalem to those who were circumcised, they, and they took issue with him. There's the complaining. And what are they complaining about? Verse 3, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeding to explain to them in orderly sequence, step by step, what had taken place. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, a certain object coming down like a great sheet lowered from four quarters from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze upon it, was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and the wild beasts and the crawling creatures and the creeping things and the birds of the air, right? And I also heard a voice say to me, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. Remember, there's the legalism. I've never done this. I've never done this. I've never done this. But a voice from heaven answered a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times because some of us are thick-headed and we need God to say things to us multiple times. Amen? So three times this happened and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house I was staying at and they were sent from Caesarea and the Holy Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. And there were six of us that went with us and we entered this man's house. He reported to us how he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, send to Joppa, have Simon come. Uh, and be brought here, and he shall speak to you 
the words by which you will be saved. Circle that phrase because this is where we know Cornelius was religious, but he wasn't righteous in God's economy. See, he was religious, but didn't know repentance. This is not about what you do, because we know Cornelius had, he, he would have gotten an A plus in, in, in religion class. He prayed, he gave, he had a great reputation. He was just a nice guy, right? But he was lacking the most important thing, and that is Jesus. And why was Peter sent? So that Peter could bring Jesus to Cornelius and his household. So there it is, verse 14. This is the reason why Peter was on this mission for God, to bring the message of Jesus so that Cornelius' household could be saved. Verse 15, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And he's reflecting back to Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit falls on the Jews. Now he's just experienced the Holy Spirit fall on the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit drops upon people equally. Can I get an amen? The Holy Spirit converts, changes people equally. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but I, I shall be baptized, uh, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There is a greater baptism than the water baptism, and that's the spirit baptism. And the spirit baptism is the same baptism every believer in Christ undergoes, regardless of political affiliation, regardless of skin color, regardless of, of you know, whatever you want to use as, as, as an opportunity to be discriminatory or prejudicial. The Holy Spirit comes upon people equally, in the same manner, in the same fashion when it comes to conversion. Verse 17, if God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? Underline that question. And I think maybe the question we should be asking ourselves every single day. Who am I to stand in God's way? You know who learned this lesson the hard way? Jonah. You guys know about Jonah? He just was resistant, resistant, resistant. And when you stand in God's way, I almost picture him as like this, this, this guy who's just going to be like, fine, just shove you right. Is, it, is our God a God who shoves? Have you ever been shoved by God? He'll do it. With or without you. He wants to do it with you, but if you, you know, get out of my way. I got work to do, right? Who am I to stand in God's way? And when they heard this, verse 18, they quieted down. And glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. May God write his eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. So, first point is this, missional hindrances. So, we see right out of the bat that the news of the Gentiles con being converted travels so fast it gets to Jerusalem before Peter gets there. This is exactly like Mark Twain says. He says, a lie finds its way around the world before truth even has a the time to put the shoes on. Right? Isn't it crazy how quickly falsehood travels? Isn't it amazing how, how lies travel? And truth barely gets out the door. And so here are the 
the, the, the headquarters, right, Jerusalem, here are the, the early Jewish believers there, and they hear about the Gentiles coming to know Jesus. And what's their mindset? Complain. And they're all sitting there at the table waiting for Peter to arrive. Peter shows up like, because <laughs> I'm going to tell you right now, Peter is experiencing a freedom. A freedom that I wish all believers would experience. That when you have Jesus and you love everybody and anybody liberally, it's the most magnificent life you could ever live. You don't want to walk around prejudicial and discriminatory and judging and condemning and accusing and hypocritical and legalistic and you fill in whatever word. You want to be able to walk around with the freedom that Christ has given you in salvation as you've been loved. You now love other people. And so Peter's just like, <laughs> I'm experiencing an era of my existence I've never felt before. God's breaking in and showing Peter the freedom that there is to, to live in Christ and to share Christ. So he walks into a room that is just, it's just thick with judgment. Right? He comes in. This church, the authority of the early church right there in Jerusalem, he arrives. He's got... <laughs> He's got the smell of ham on his breath. He's maybe got a little lobster in his beard. <laughs> he's like, I get to love people not like me. I get to eat food I've never eaten before. You think about all the things he's celebrating, right? He walks in and everyone's just like, what's their issue? Verse 3. We heard you ate with people not like us. We wanted you to come back and reinforce our prejudices. We wanted you to come back and, and let us know it's okay to continue to follow the law and to be legalistic. Like, you're not telling us what we want to hear or need to hear. We're telling us, we want you to tell us what we want to hear. And Peter's going, guys, there's something amazing going on. He's, he's excited, right? So Peter comes to Jerusalem and and, and they're just like, you know what? We heard you ate a meal, and they weren't concerned at all that these Gentiles had come to know Jesus. They were just wanting to be legalistic and to be happy in their legalism. Here's what they didn't want. They didn't want to be made uncomfortable. They didn't want to be disturbed from their life that was easy. Can I just tell you right now, if your Christian life is easy and, and, and comfortable, you're not walking in the Spirit. And not that I do this on Sunday, but if you're not leaving here offended by something, either I'm not doing a good job as a communicator of God's word, or maybe you're not doing a good job of listening to the Spirit. Because here's what I'm not here to do. I'm not here to reinforce your prejudices and encourage you continuing in your discriminatory behavior and how you think less of people. And I'm here as God's messenger, based upon his word, to make us uncomfortable because the mission requires us to never settle for status quo the mission of god needs to continue to surprise us interrupt us and be abrupt in in reminding us that just when you think you got to figure it out tomorrow's going to look a little bit different and all god's people said See, the dust hasn't even settled, and they've already got their fingers wagging at Peter. How dare you? Shame on you for loving people not like us. 
Three problems here I want to identify. Number one, there's a doctrinal problem. And unfortunately, it's not the doctrines of God that are the problem. It's the doctrines of men that are a problem. And by men, I mean men and women. Some of you are like, I can't believe how chauvinistic he is. So you're judging already. See, these men in Jerusalem were not governed by Scripture. They were governed by traditions and doctrines of men. And sometimes our traditions, sometimes our beliefs, sometimes our conclusions can be hindrances to the purpose of God. Because why? Because we have no biblical support for them. And yet we've made them as if they are God-ordained principles. Can you think of some God-ordained principles that you have believed in that are not rooted in Scripture? Something that you have been told by somebody that you... I'm not doubting their love for Christ. I'm not doubting their love for the church. But sometimes we develop practices and principles and beliefs that don't coincide with the heart of God. Would you agree with that? We serve, now this might shock you, we serve a contemporary God. What do I mean by that? Our God is never surprised by the future. Our God is never out of date. He is never threatened by technological advancement. He's never threatened by evolving cultures. He's never nervous with who's in the White House at any given moment. Our God is a contemporary God who, may I remind you, whose message never changes, but the methods of engagement with the culture do. We should celebrate all the discoveries being made and all the advancement we're experiencing when it comes to medicine and technology and whatever. But what? But... We never lose sight of the importance that Jesus is Lord. That salvation is by grace alone. That he's coming back. Just like he said he's going to come back. That the Bible is the infallible, authoritative word and heart of God given to us in this world. And so we remember the message never changes, but the methods have to continually change. And if I can put it another way, while truth is not relative, we find ways to make it relevant. You like that? Write that down. While truth is not relative, we must find ways to make it relevant. And when you don't find ways to make it relevant, you begin to get stuck in traditionalism. But we've always done it that way. We've ne- Our old pastor never talked like that. Oh, what, are you telling me I need to be Jesus at my workplace? Why can't I just be Jesus at my church? This is, this is part of what we created with the Sozo Missio Dei model. Right When we set out 12 plus years ago to start this, this coffee house that would also be a bridge to the community and just find ways to connect with people, you want to know how many people were doing what we wanted to do? Zero. Not just in the city, not just in the state, not just in the country, not even in the world. I was this guy who's like, I got this great idea because I'm spending too much money at other coffee houses. We could create our own coffee house for the amount of money we're spending elsewhere. I say that not, not jokingly. I literally looked at our checking account one time. I said, honey, you know how much we're spending at other coffee? We could own our own coffee house. And we're kind of like. There were people doing some similar things, but it wasn't what we exactly wanted to do. And I'll tell you what, God just put a, put a, put a fire in me. 
and said, there's people that need to be loved. There's people that need to be connected with, regardless of their sexual identity, regardless of their marital status, regardless of their political leanings. Whatever it is, I want you to create a place. We call it a third place because you have your home, you have your work, and then you have those places you choose to hang out. We wanted to create a third place environment where people could experience the love of Christ with not, without us necessarily leading out with, hey, here's a Bible. Let me tell you about Jesus. Oh, we'll never see you again. Okay, Godspeed. We've, we've earned the opportunity to be involved in someone's life and to speak truth into people's lives. But you better, you better believe there came two, two reactions from people. There were people who respected what we were doing, even maybe they, they, they couldn't wrap their minds around it, and then there were people that ridiculed what we were doing because it didn't look like them. Matter of fact, as we were casting vision for this, we had people go, so where's the cross going to go on the church? And I go, nowhere. And they're like, oh, where's the stained glass images of, of Jesus with a little lamb in his arms? Nowhere. Wait, where's the Bible going to? Like they couldn't divorce their mind from the institution. And again, I'm not bagging the institution. But unfortunately, the institution of the church is part of our problem today. We think that only holy activity takes place in the brick-and-mortar location of such-and-such such Baptist church, such-and-such such Presbyterian church, such-and-such such Bible church. That's why people go, Pastor, where's your church? I go, wherever God's people are at. Because we're going to downplay the institution of it, and we're going to play, play up the, organ, or the, orga, um, the organic nature of it. See, I'm not against stained glass. I'm not against crosses. But we have to find ways of connecting people that are going to be different. And in 12 years, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people who are like, tell me about this. Tell me how you got started. And, you know, I, I go into it and I tell them about it, and they're just like, they, they get excited about it, but it's, it's hard work. But you know what? God's blessed us. I'm so encouraged. I, I'm happier than I've ever been in ministry. And it's not because I get free coffee daily <laughs> that I get these IV drips of just espresso. Just dump it right in there, baby. Like, this is the model, right? And, and when God works, it's, it's, he wants to do something. He wants to support something that's for his glory. See, we believe in absolute truth. Write that word down, absolute. We believe in absolute truth. And if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know how unabashedly we are proponents of Jesus, the word, salvation by grace, the second coming, all those things, right? But here's one thing I have, you have to write down too. You need to adjust your truth. This is how you build bridges to people. You ask questions, where are you at? What's going on in your world? What do you, what do you wrestle with? What, what's your upbringing like, right? You build bridges and you have to adjust the truth. Not that you never talk about Jesus, but you pray for opportunities to, to talk about Jesus at some point. Because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's, and there's salvation in no other name but the name of Christ, right? And so we exist to almost be kind of like a, uh, an illustration of something that any of you could do anywhere you go. This is why the church exists not just on Sundays, but Monday through Saturdays, wherever we may be. The church is at your gym. When you're there, the church is there. The church is at, what's that? When you're there. That's, uh, that's a big if you're there. Big if, Right? The church is in your neighborhood, churches in your community, churches at your HOA meeting, the church is at your, your school. The church is wherever you're at. 
Because God never calls us to go to church. He calls us to be the church. And yet we hinder this. Why? Because we're too busy scrutinizing what is going on. We're so rigid and resistant, and God's saying, when are you going to become more adaptable and accommodating? You can be Jesus anywhere. You can be Jesus at the sports bar. Some of you may be there today. No judgment. See, Jesus didn't have an issue with sinful people. He hung out with them. He loved them. See, his, he didn't have a doctrinal problem where he created doctrines of men like, oh, you can't hang out with people not like you. You can't hang out with sinners. You know why? Because they sin. That's what sinners do. I'm amazed at Christians that are like, oh, I can't believe my coworker cusses as much as they, they do. And I go, do they know Jesus? They're like, no. I go, well, what are, you, what are you surprised at? Sinners sin. That might be the greatest quote today. Let's move into the societal problem. How do we exist in a culture of people not like us? Here's why I say this, or the social problem is this. Number one, we're too easily offended. We're too easily offended. You need to throw, you know, grow some thick skin. Some of you are so, like, just high and mighty that, you know, your skin is so thin that the, mo you know, the, some, someone says something offensive, you see something offensive, you're just so quick to rattle off some opinion or some scathing review or some... Guess what? We live in a world where people's hearts are ransacked by sin. And they behave out of what they believe, and you shouldn't be so offended. And plus, we maybe shouldn't be so offended by one another. Give one another the benefit of the doubt. Imagine that. These guys in Jerusalem, when Peter came back, they had already come up with their opinion, and then they decided to gather facts later. I never want to be a part of a culture like that where all of a sudden someone has already made up their mind and they haven't heard the full story yet. Number two, the other thing I think is sometimes believers act overly hypocritical. We're the worst. We're the worst. We act like we got our stuff together and we don't. Let's just, let's just lead with weakness, shall we? Let's just lead with vulnerability, shall we? Let's, here's how we cure the social problem is we don't act holier than anybody else. We don't act more self-righteous than anybody else. We, we try to allow, let God eradicate the pride that exists. And let's just humble ourselves with people and just say, hey, I have Jesus. That doesn't mean my life always works out perfectly because all of us could see here as a testimony this morning and say, amen. I've had a train wreck of a week. How about you? But I have hope. I have hope, and that hope doesn't disappoint. We want uniformity. We don't want unity. Here's one of my, and this is me. The, the world doesn't know the church is unified because we cater to, to dividing the, the, the people of God on Sunday mornings even. Matter of fact, the most segregated time in our country is on Sunday mornings because we have white churches and black churches. We have contemporary services and traditional services. Can I just tell you, like, what, how stupid is that? I'm sorry. If you have a church, what, what are we doing? We're encouraging people to live in immaturity because they can't recognize that, oh, maybe the contemporary people have something to teach us and maybe the traditional people have something to teach us. We foster division and disunity 
by offering everybody what they want. That's stupid. What we do is we learn to grow in unity and harmony with one another when we understand one another's differences, we celebrate one another's differences, and we make room to express one another's differences when it comes to the proper time. There's a mosaic of people that exist here. Why can't we celebrate the, the nations, the people, the food, the cultures, right? We're all about, you know, I want to worship with a black person as long as, as long as they don't bring too much blackness to my church. And the black person says, I want to celebrate the white people, but I don't want to celebrate if there can be too much whiteness. How does that reflect the heart of Christ? Again, it's still your terms. And God's saying, I love the nations. And I love all people. When are you going to start doing it, church? How about this, an attitude problem? Here's what these guys... And like I said, the attitudes of criticizing first and gathering information later, later is, is just unacceptable. Their objections to Peter were the same level as Jesus. Here's what, I, here's what I think Peter, at this moment, he hears these guys. I think he gets a little smile on his face. Because he's like, all the things that they're leveling against me are the things they leveled at Jesus. And when they level things at you because you reflect Jesus, you're doing okay. Can I get an amen from somebody? If you look and act like Jesus, you're in good company. And people aren't going to understand that. And so I think G Peter's sitting here going, okay, they said this to Jesus, and he's just taking his cues. How did they treat Jesus? He was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. They didn't like him hanging out with dirty, filthy people, right? So Peter's like, I'm in good company. Can I encourage you something? Pro tip, two things right here. Before judging the behavior of another believer, give them the opportunity to share with you what's going on. Hear them out. Can I get an amen? We're so judgmental. We got pastors falling morally. We got pastors taking breaks from, there's a pastor in Texas. Big news, right? The bigger the, the platform, the bigger the news story. And no one has a clue what's going on behind the scenes, but the elders of that church do. So you know what you do? Shut your face. Right? You, you're, everyone's like, this is really what's going on. How do you know? If you've sat down with that pastor and he's disclosed to you what's going on in his life, then that's one thing. But for you to draw conclusions that you have no clue whether they're true or not, you ought to keep your mouth shut. Can I get an amen? And Lord knows, I've been a part of that in the past. Of, sp of perhaps spreading thoughts that I've had about a situation that I didn't know all the details. So if you have an issue with another believer, before you judge... Give them the opportunity to hear them out. Amen? If it's a non-believer, before you judge the behavior of a non-believer, it's important to engage them as a human being and to hear their story. Because we love to judge and judging another person hypocritically. It's not that we don't judge, but notice what Jesus says in Matthew 7, right? Before you try to remove the speck from your brother's eye, Remove the log from your own. Meaning you need to be very self-aware, self-reflective, right? And oftentimes when you do that, you've got no issue with anybody else. It's like when Jesus said, hey, if you're here and you're without sin, go ahead and, and throw the stone at this woman who's been caught in bed with her lover. Go ahead and step right up and do it. And everyone started dropping their stones from the oldest to the youngest. And they all left. It was just <laughs> Jesus and this woman. She's like, where are they that are going to condemn you? They're, she's like, they're not here. And neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Don't you love how Jesus like restores her humanity? 
he, the Lord of the universe who could judge her at that moment, doesn't. But he sets her into a life of freedom. And she's been shown grace like she's never been shown before. Before you judge a non-believer, you need to engage them as a human being. And when you do that, I guarantee judgment falls by the wayside and grace becomes the modus operandi, the prime directive. Grace. Can you write down that word down? Grace. It's grace and truth. Would you believe, would you agree that maybe we do too much criticizing and condemning? Would you agree that maybe we do too much ac- accusing? Would you agree maybe we do too much, uh, we have too much suspicion and doubt? Would you agree that maybe we're, we're a bit too legalistic at times? I don't want to be a part of a culture like that. I remember we had a, we had a band in the 90s, Lori and I. It's called Bumperfish. Uh, you know you've made it as a band when you go to the, the 25 cent discount CD rack at any used record store and there's your CD for 25 cents. You're like, yeah, we've made it. We're in the discount band. So we did a CD. But so uh, the band that was part of this college ministry, which was, a, it was an interesting thing. So at this church, uh, the college ministry was growing, but the church itself was dying. And so me and the pastor, other pastors were trying to figure out, like, how do we bring unity to this, this body? that exists, and it's been there for decades, and so the pastor said, why don't you have the band come over and lead music in the main service? We call it the grown-up church. We had the college church, and we had the grown-up church. Big church, big church, right? So literally, the band is getting ready to lead music that morning, and you literally see people walking in, and as soon as they see our guitars and see us, they turn around and walk away, and that's heartbreaking, Men and women, 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. We call the 90-year-olds the Methuselah Club. They're the old, the old guard, right? Men and women you would expect more maturity from, but because they didn't like your look, because they didn't like the style of music, it's like, all right, we're making a judgment, we're leaving, we're not a part of this. I don't want to be a part of a culture like that. I had a man one time come up to me, when I was newly saved, I walked into church one time <laughs> with a bandana on my head, tank top, pink board shorts, and barefoot. And I walked into church, and this older man just grabbed me and just said, hey, I want you to know something. I love you. I love you. I love that you're here. And I love the way you, you want to dress. But he just gently took me aside. He said, just so you know, there's going to be people here that won't, won't understand. <laughs> They're going to look at you and be like, what is this guy doing here? Right? But you know what he did? He lovingly spoke into my life. Now, part of the rebel part of me, and, and I'm still a 52-year-old rebel, just so you know, God's not done with me in that department. How about you? There's still times I'm like, I'm going to shake this thing up, and I'm looking forward to it. And there was a part of me that would just say, oh, I'm going to make old people mad in the church? Good. I'm going to keep doing it, Right? But I appreciated this man's approach with me. That he lovingly just said, he didn't come across judgmental, condemning, critical. 
but he just basically said, I want to just make you aware of something. And I remember that 37 years later. You can, you can communicate. A, now, in the Bible, is there a dress code? Aren't you glad there's no chapter that says, here's how you're supposed to look like Eddie, right? Look at him. Dress pants, collared shirt. And then you've got, you know, who over here? you got Jesse. Look, he's got a ball cap on. He's got a T-shirt. Yeah. Right? Tattoos, right? I'm still untatted. Pray for me. I don't know if that's big for Big deal. People are like, tats, no tats. Where do you stand? I'm like, nowhere, right? Like, it doesn't matter. Jesus doesn't talk about it. Manatees, right? Whatever. Okay. We, I think part of our, our, our problem is that we've been institutionalized. If you remember the movie Shawshank Redemption, one of the greatest movies ever made. So many illustrations for the church from that movie. I can't choose a better movie, either Shawshank or Matrix. Both of them, incredibly, deeply spiritual truths, right? But you know, the Shawshank Redemption, people have spent so much time in church. And again, I'm speaking, this is an in-house discussion. We've been so institutionalized, we don't know what living outside of these walls looks like and feels like. And I'm going to tell you right now, outside of the church's walls, there's freedom. There's freedom to express. There's freedom to engage. There's freedom to, to um, connect. There's freedom to eat. There's freedom to talk. There's freedom to show grace. There's freedom to love liberally. Amen? So who's our hero this morning? Point number two. It's Peter. So look what he does real quick. This is how we know Peter's grown. This is how we know Pastor Scott's grown, right? Because he's not coming in every Sunday going, okay, who can I really upset today? Who can I really offend today? Peter comes in, and he's considering how to answer his critics. And he could have said, I know what happened, and I don't have to explain myself to you. <laughs> he could have just asked. He doesn't. He could have come in and said, uh, am I not Peter? Jesus's bestie, the big fisherman, the grand poobah, bow down and kiss the ring of El Jefe, right? He doesn't say this. Peter works hard. And again, this is, a mo this is maturity for Peter, to keep the peace and promote understanding. I'm going to say that again. He has to, in this moment, and again, he's flying high on freedom in Christ right now. Because he's just had his first pulled pork sandwich, and he's like, what, what have I been doing all my life? He's flying high in freedom in Christ, and his heart is to, to, to keep the peace and promote understanding. And if I said it another way, it would be this. His response is more pastoral than argumentative. Don't we need to engage one another like this? Everything that is presented to you as maybe a disagreement is not necessarily a debate opportunity. Everything that's shared with you that might be different than what you believe is not necessarily something that you just blow up into an argument over. Right? Perhaps the pastoral tone that we see Peter exemplifying here is something for us to learn, right? There's no fancy theological loaded words. He's not arguing scripture with these guys. He's merely going to share with them what God has done. And I love it because here's his mentality. I once sat where you guys are sitting. I once believed what you guys are embracing. 
he puts himself where they're at because he was once there. And I think we lose sight of that. We become so sanctified in Christ, we forget about those who are outside of Christ because one day we were there too. And so Peter tells the Jerusalem church that he understands where they're coming from and he wants to share with them something God's been teaching him. Literally, here's what he says. Several days ago, I saw things as you do. Let me tell you how God changed my mind. And I love it, too, because when God does something revolutionary, he wants to bring about major change, he doesn't do it in mass. He doesn't do it with a collective. He does it through one person. I love how God takes Peter and expands on his purpose in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and, and blows up the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it happened with one person. Happened with one person by the name of Martin Luther. Happened with one person, like guy like Billy Graham, right? Evangelism, right? Uh, people come to know Jesus en masse, right? So two things we need to recognize here. Of Peter and his tactics. This is why he's a hero. He builds a bridge of divine facts. Verses 4 through 10. He merely goes through, and I love what he says in, in verse 4. Don't miss it. He begins speaking and proceeding to explain to them step by step. This has nothing to do with emotions. This has everything to do with events. Don't we become too emotional sometimes? And when we become emotional, it gets a little bit muddy and boggy. Peter is going to step by step describe what has taken place. And I'm going to tell you right now why this is important, because you need to let the facts speak for themselves. Because Peter is such a big player in the early church, he is not likely to go into Gentile territory and then come up with some invented story to back it up. He's not like that. So he's merely going to walk through what he has personally experienced. Here are the facts. But the second thing that's key that we can't get away from is that there's also a bridge of divine fingerprints all over this situation. Don't you love it? When God asks you to do something and then he comes in and he confirms by doing things that bring him glory, bring people to Christ, and is evidence of the Holy Spirit working, God's fingerprints all over this situation. And so he says to them, look at verse 11, and behold, after I've shared the facts, behold, at that moment, three men appeared at my house, and all of a sudden, now it's set in motion. Here is the moment G Peter had to say, am I going to disobey what has been shown to me, or am I going to obey? Write those two words down, obey or disobey. Isn't this really kind of where, 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 how much we believe God on a day-to-day -day basis? Are we going to step out on what is fact, what God has revealed to me, and am I going to obey or disobey? Because when you obey, guess what happens? You have divine confirmation that you're doing what God wants you to do. So look what he says, verse 11. So they come to my door. He could have played, I'm not home game. You, you, you get those knocks sometimes, right? Uh-oh. This is where I need to do something. 
I'm going to hide, turn the lights off, turn down the music, turn down the TV? Or am I going to answer the door? Peter answers the door. And thus sets in motion an opening the door, a two-day journey, entering a Gentile's house, places packed with Gentiles. He gets to share Jesus. Before he's even into his sermon, the Holy Spirit falls. They're converted, speaking in tongues. Peter and his six other henchmen that were together are all going, God is awesome! Why? Because obedience led to God's confirmation and God acting and an eternal change taking place. God's fingerprints are all over this. He doesn't have to explain himself. All he has to do is explain the activity of God. What's God doing in your lives that only he can get the credit for? What's God doing in and through you that's got his hand prints all over it? And you can't do anything but go, I don't know, but God is being glorified. Christ is being exalted, and the Spirit is working in ways that we could never understand. What's going on? Because it's directly tied to obedience. You have the facts. What are you going to do with the facts? Peter is my missional hero. He's the guy that I go, I'm a lot like him. Open my mouth at the worst times say things at the worst moments, <laughs> tend to be impetuous. But I tell you what, even when he was down, God didn't count him out. And even when he failed, didn't mean he was disqualified. And at the end of this, look what he says. Look at verse 16, 17, 18. I remember the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but I baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If God therefore gave to them the same gift as he gave to us, who was I to stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they quieted down, glorified God, saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance that leads to life. Here's, here's his conclusion. Gentlemen, it doesn't matter what you or I think. God has spoken, and that puts an end to the debate. Isn't that awesome? We are to be impressed with three things here, I believe. Here's your homework. Missional homework. You ready for this? And it all involves the Trinity. Imagine that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You guys ready? Point number one. You need to consider how important the words of Christ are. To stand in God's way is neither safe nor wise. Who are you to stand in God's way? Here's what Peter does. Look at verse 16. He remembers the words of Jesus. John said, we're going to baptize with water. Jesus says, I got a greater baptism. How about the Spirit? Where the words of Christ are present, there is freedom. Where the words of Jesus are present, there is truth. Where the words of Jesus are present, there is grace. Where the words of Jesus are present, there is acceptance. Where the words of Jesus are present, there are, there's life. I don't care about your words. I care about the words of Jesus. And how we best reflect. Now I say don't care about your words. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I care about your words. 
But our words, let's just all agree, take back seat to what our Lord and Savior, God incarnate, shared with us in his earthly ministry. And beyond, the entire corpus of God's word, the scriptures, Genesis and Revelation, that is God's word given to us. That's what we bank our lives on. Can I get an amen from somebody? The words of Jesus are what is going to be the fuel for our missional activity. So think about it. Think about your life. Think about what you're entering into tomorrow. What words of Jesus are going to come to play with the relationships you have with people at work, in your neighborhood, in your family? Think about how God's word, and you don't need a site reference. You're talking to your Aunt Debbie. She's got something going on. You're like, well, Aunt Debbie, Romans chapter 8 says, you don't need to do that. Let the word, if the word dwells in you, the word is going to flow through you and give you opportunities to share that word with others. If the word's not flowing, the word's not abiding. You need to abide. And Jesus says in John 15, write it down. You abide in me, I abide in you. You know what? You're going to go out there and you're going to do fantastic things. There's a freedom. Secondly, is there's the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 17. God therefore gave the same gift he gave to us, meaning the Spirit is working in ways that are beyond our understanding. The Spirit is working in lives, men, women, black, white, doesn't matter, that the Gentile Pentecost that Peter just witnessed in chapter 10 is identical to the Jewish Pentecost, which means God shows no favorites. There's no favoritism. There's no partiality with God, right? God makes converts. We make disciples. Can I just tell you how important this is? You don't go out and save anybody. Can I get an amen? Boy, we've put, we've put too much of a burden on ourselves. Like, oh, I'm going to save my Aunt Debbie if it means the world, you know. To me. I'm going to sacrifice, whatever. Like, I don't have an Aunt Debbie. You probably have an Aunt Debbie. I don't know. Fill in the blank. You think your personal mission is to go save somebody. Let me just tell you the bad news. You can't save anybody. But let me tell you the good news. God can save anybody. This is why Jesus didn't say in Matthew 28, go and, and convert people. What does Jesus say? Go and make disciples. Meaning, connect with people, figure out where people are at spiritually, and, and then observe what God may or may not be doing. Isn't it an incredible freedom knowing that you and I are powerless to save anybody, but God is more than powerful? And this is ultimately the heart of God, the last point. The heart of God is for all the nations. Here's what we know from bi the Bible. God loves all people. That doesn't mean he's going to save all people. But God basically says every single person born into this world reflects my image. And they are the potential recipient of the love of Jesus Christ. You don't go out and show any sort of bias, some sort of discrimination. You go tell everybody. Arab, Jew, Chinese, Korean, American, Mexican, it doesn't matter. Because we know the picture of Revelation is that there are men and women from every tribe, tongue, people, nation worshiping the Lamb. Here's God's heart for all people to hear about Christ. But you also need to understand, though, He's the one that grants repentance. So here's your missional homework. Share the words of Jesus. Trust the power of the Spirit. And pray that you reflect 
the heart of God in loving all people. Let me close with this. Do I have time? Yeah, I got a couple minutes. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II died a few days ago. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I haven't seen The Crown. I haven't watched any of these movies about the monarchy, <laughs> shows about the monarchy. I'm, I'm ignorant. But doing a deep dive into her life this week has changed my thoughts about the queen. And I'm going to share things with you that you may not know about her. This is not secret information, but um, she was 96. She came to be queen at age 26. Um, she had a faith in Christ that was quiet, that was private, something I didn't know about her. She had a really close relationship with Billy Graham. They did Bible studies frequently. Let me tell you some things about her real quick and the re reason why I'm telling you this. So in her first speech in 1952, here's what she said. I want to ask you all, whatever your religion may be, to pray for me on that day. Pray that God may give me wisdom and strength and to carry out the solemn promises I shall be making and that I may faithfully serve him and you all the days of my life. That's how she starts. Is it queenhood, queenship? What do you, what do you say? Her queening? I don't know. Whatever, whatever you want to talk about. Then she says, with her title, and you guys probably didn't know this, not only is she the queen of England, she also gets this title that because of her responsibilities now include the title the defender of the faith and supreme governor of the Church of England. Now I'm going to tell you right now, Queen Elizabeth's easier to say. But she, as queen, steps in and becomes the defender of the faith and supreme government, uh, governor of the Church of England. She says, back in 1970, that even though I'm the queen, I want to recognize Jesus Christ as the only king and head of the church. That's 1970. Her faith was more than a product of polite deference, this article says. She says in, in 2000, for me, the teachings of Christ and my own personal accountability before God provide a framework in which I will try to lead my life. I, like so many of you, have drawn great comfort in difficult times from Christ's words and example. Here's what's so amazing as I'm reading about this. There is so much drama going on in her family. She's the one that leads out of dignity. She leads out of respect. She leads out of quietness, right? While all this other drama is going on around her, there's the queen. And she's just showing up and she's just doing her job. And, and I love that because one article pointed this out. The queen was so respected by people. Why? Because she didn't get wrapped up in the drama and she showed up and she did her job. Church, those sound like prime directives to me. Will you show up every single day and not get wrapped up in the drama, but do the job that God wants you to do. Because here's the thing that really stood out to me, and I'll close with this. I'm going to post a couple articles that I found really helpful on the queen. The interesting thing with a monarchy and some sort of democracy, and how the two are connected, and, and the writer of this other article says it this way. He says, um, 
we all have this weird understanding of the monarchy and, and the de- in, the, in the democracy. And he basically says that a monarchy doesn't reflect enlightenment views. It's very primordial. But the reason why the monarchy was, is so appreciated in, in England was because it represents something um, unseen and ununderstandable that politics can't get us. That the monarchy is attached to a person while democracy is connected to, to laws and policies. And they said the reason why uh, people love this idea of monarchy is because what they have is they have authority and mystery in a human form. And I sit there and go, what greater presence in this world is there than the church of Jesus Christ, namely his people. If you're called a believer, if you follow Jesus as Lord and Savior, you have a presence of authority and mystery that I pray would be wrapped up in uh, respect, dignity, honor, that you would show up every single day and do the job that God wants you to do because you, as well as the queen, are serving a, a... a, a, a royalty that is not of this world. She gives deference to Christ. You serve a kingdom, not of this world. You may be involved in de- de- democracy. You may be involved in politics. Those things are all fine and well and good. But there's only one kingdom that's going to last forever, and there's only one king who will reign forever. We're part of this, ru- this rule. How are you bringing that to bear on your relationships? Here's your homework. Represent the king well. Long live the king And all God's people said, I'll post those articles online, so make sure you find those. Really fantastic stuff. Here's what I'm praying for, for us to be missional people. You are leaving now to go on your mission, and I'm praying for you. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Peter, for Acts 11, for for the lessons that you have for us there, and probably so many more than than I was able to unpack with us this morning. But Lord, may your spirit impress upon our hearts truth. May the Spirit impress upon our hearts the passion of, 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 of God's heart for people. May we go forth loving liberally and showing grace without end so that some would come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. That is our mission now. That is our mission forever. Remind us of this continually. Thank you for the gathering of your people. Pray for each person to have the Spirit direct their steps. And may our objective be to glorify you and share Jesus with as many people as possible. Thank you for loving us in Christ. And we pray these things in his great and magnificent name. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face toward you and give you his grace and peace forever and ever. Have a great day, guys. See you soon.